In some remote corner of the universe, poured out and glittering in innumerable solar systems, there once was a star on which clever animals invented knowledge. That was the highest and most mendacious minute of world history, yet only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the stars grew cold, and the clever animals had to die. Today, we'll be talking about On Truth and Lie in an Extra Moral Sense by Friedrich Nietzsche. And what I just read is the uh, first paragraph. <laughs> give you a taste. <laughs> yeah, that's an epic first paragraph. That's where my translation. <laughs> yeah. uh, my translation is so much better. <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Whoops. But, yeah, this. Um, the writing is. Yeah, maybe to get the kind of less essential thing out of the way the right i thought this was written so well it's kind of crazy <laughs> just the the metaphors he uses i guess the similes ironically are really really good ironically or unironically <laughs> I, ironically given his <laughs> arguments I think. right right yeah okay well i'll try to give a quick idea of what I got from the essay um so yeah the first paragraph talks about these clever beasts who develop uh consciousness right uh knowledge and so he talks about um so the essay is called untruth and lies in a non-moral sense and he talks about how these clever beasts, you know, humans came up with uh, the idea of truth. And he says that basically at first, um, truth was kind of what uh, you could hold others accountable for. And Mm -hmm. it was important to do that uh, so that you wouldn't be harmed. Um, so, I guess um, you could develop a reputation for being truthful, and it would be a good thing to develop that kind of reputation. And it would be, uh, it's good to be accurate about who is being truthful, so you don't uh, get stabbed in the back. Things like that. He's very not concrete in his examples, so I have to kind of... <laughs> come up with them even when they're not very good so yeah yeah, so he says a liar is someone who uses like the improper words to refer to things and it's inconvenient to deal with people who lie and that's why humans valued truth at first not because truth is intrinsically was intrinsically valuable to people but just because the there were good effects associated with truth, which made um, truth valuable through its association with those good effects. Yeah, 
and the, the good effects of which you speak are mostly in the form of being able to predict and control other people. Like, uh, in, I think that he says it well here, the venerability, reliability, and utility of truth is something which a person demonstrates for himself from the contrast with the liar, whom no one trusts and everyone excludes. As a rational being, he now places his behavior under the control of abstractions. He will no longer tolerate being carried away by sudden impressions, by intuitions. He first universalizes all these impressions into less colorful, cooler concepts, so that he can entrust the guidance of his life and connect to them. So it's almost like you're you're saying, I'm not just gonna do anything. I, I'm I'm trustworthy. I, I can be counted on to act in a particular rational way that you can understand. Yeah. And yeah, the context that he brings up, you know, how this truth impulse came about is like he says you know, animals in general, it's kind of bizarre that truth ever became a value value at all when um yeah, animals are so easily, I guess, distracted by things that are in front of them and they're greedy and insatiable uh murderous <laughs> um just distracted by right, kind of the passing uh images in front of them basically so yeah it's it's weird or it's uh interesting in that context to see why truth would become a value at all and yeah and yeah, so his explanation is like became a value uh, because it was socially valuable. And then mm-hmm. there's like there there gets to the second part of the essay. And this essay is a lot broader than kind of just uh, this aspect about truth that we're talking about. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, um, it's quite an uh, experience of an essay. Yeah. Uh, so he says, yeah, truth is, I guess, um, people, uh, come up with concepts like you were talking about to filter reality and make it understandable. And concepts are kind of, they're abstract things that you take away from the massive experience that you experience. So he talks about like a leaf is an, is a concept and it's a leaf is what is in common between all these thousands of different objects. And so, so there isn't, you know, this ideal leaf somewhere like a platonic ideal of the leaf, but the concept (laughs) of leaf kind of makes it seem like there is, one when really you're just um trying to get at what remains uh common in between these thousands of issue- of different things so there could be an idea of leafness that is like the nature of a leaf in which all of these particular leaves partake in their being leaves but he speaks of it as if that that conceptualization is purely a construction and that there isn't anything 
uh, to leafness other than how we use it in language and in social interactions. Yeah. And so he says, yeah, there isn't really anything in, that is in common in between all of the leaves, I guess. <laughs> but it, <laughs> I can't um, say that. Um, like they're all, yeah, these totally thousands of totally individual objects that we kind of uh, abstractly put together and and then come up with this idea of a leaf. And then, so we so truth arises in this context as well. It's like you kind of compare one concept to another concept, and then we designate some of those uh, analogies as being true. So, and and he has so few examples of this. Like the leaf is was like the most concrete example he had in the entire paper. But <laughs> like if I say. The sky is blue, I want to say. Like, the sky is, you know, one abstraction. It's, it's one concept. It's, like, this thing above me. But it's not just the sky, the thing that's above me right now. It's And it's not even what's directly above me, but because the roof is above me. But above that is the sky. But it's also, you know, what's in common, what's there um, above you, and then above me at different times as well. So, so we kind of came up with the concept of sky to refer to. And the sky, it's the same sky at night as well, even when it's not blue. Yeah. So we say, yeah, we abstractly say that it is the same thing, even though, you know, th- they are different things, you know, but uh, we say they're the same because yeah. we find similarities in it. And then the sky, and then blue is also similar thing you know there's lots of different objects and we we say that there's something we find in common between them and we we call that blue and so we're saying the sky is blue you know we we think that's a true statement um and it's uh it's a relation between these two concepts you're predicating blue of the of the sky um, so yeah, I, I think that's an example of the truth. <laughs> yes, I think if we're going to agree on anything, we have to agree the sky is blue. <laughs> <laughs> when it is blue, yeah. Yeah, when the sky is blue, it is blue. <laughs> I think even Nietzsche would agree with that one, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's this, he, he says that every concept originates with our equating was unequal. So it's like this contradictory idea, but is in fact the basis of abstraction in general. You take all these things that are different, and you ignore their differences and come up with some way to treat them as the same. And he says that there's uh, an arbitrariness to this. But I think that, as he's described previously and in the few, in the rest of the essay, uh, it isn't exactly arbitrary, right? There's plenty of factors that uh our abstractions our concepts depend on specifically you know our social nature and our will to survive for example <laughs> so it's not arbitrary in the total sense but i think that there is a sense that it's arbitrary in a fundamental sense like there isn't anything else to truth other than what's gonna make me live longer or pass my genes on yeah so yeah, we think of truth as being inherent in things, 
like the sky is blue is true regardless of whether humans exist or not that's how we think of truth and yeah i think that's what he argues against like nothing is intrinsically true or false truths are just metaphors that we use that are useful and there's nothing more to it so i have Mm. a quote here truth is sorry Uh, Truth is a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, anthropomorphisms, in short, a sum of human relations which were poetically and rhetorically heightened, transferred, and adorned, and after a long use seem solid, canonical, and binding to a nation. Truths are illusions about which it has been forgotten that they are illusions. Yeah, that's such a good paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I guess... In the beginning, it seems like he he would even say the what truth is was pretty clear. Um, it was like what is good for us um, is true, and then I think he, he's saying as people went on and we truth uh, we created more and more of these abstract concepts in order to deal with reality. Um, truth, truth became more and more of an illusion, basically. Truths are illusions about, about which it has been forgotten that they are illusions. Yeah, so it's like maybe there was a formative period where truths are being built up out of nothing, and then once they existed... Uh, or once they've already existed and people accept them and don't even have a concept of uh, what it was like to not have these truths. Yeah, and so it seems like we people... can't imagine. We can't even imagine what it would be like to think that like there isn't such a thing as the sky being blue. Yeah. So it's yeah. It seems to people that truths are just exist out there and that they're. Yeah, intrinsically <laughs> valuable. And it doesn't seem at all like um, how Nietzsche says truth originally was. It doesn't just seem like, a, you know, what, what we, whatever we call things that are good for us. That's not, we, we see truth as being something more than that. Mm-hmm. I liked our, our approach with it. Uh, I don't remember if it was last week, maybe the week before, but it was like, you know, you imagine the uh, primitive tribe and then there's the, the the person, I'll call them people because, you know, <laughs> the person you run across and you ask them where the water is, right? And they tell you, go this way for the water. And if you go there and there's no water, well, that was a problem. But <laughs> you didn't necessarily need to come up with the, the abstraction that the problem was that they told you a lie because you can just look at it in the specific uh, only and say it's a problem because we didn't get water <laughs> yeah but then yeah people eventually yeah. did come up with the abstraction I guess because it's useful to be able to refer to people that do that kind of thing and then it's useful to be able to refer to those like individual actions in which they're lying and also to be able to say like this person lies and this person that would be the next step i guess this person lies mm-hmm. this person is truthful yeah and it's it's not 
or it, it is a building up of the substruction because maybe uh, I'm just sort of throwing ideas, but it would be you have groupings of things that are like what we would consider under the umbrella of lying or truth. Uh, and then they keep getting grouped up more and more and applying to many more things in the form of metaphors and uh, as well as to specific circumstances. Like you could say an arrow is true because it hits a target, its target. Uh, and you also say a person is honest because they tell the truth. Yeah. So it's, it's like concept creep, but it's like the fundamental basis of concepts in general. Anyway. Yeah, he, he says uh, the drive toward the formation of metaphors is the fundamental human drive. <laughs> right. So it seems like, yeah, there's these two things that he combines. It's, it's like he combines his idea of truth and then uh, he combines that with this, like, concept creating metaphor creating human drive I think that the the interesting thing that this essay gets you to think of truth or the interesting way that it gets you to think of truth in is there isn't really much of an issue thinking of plenty of concepts in this way like home let's say is a concept and you can see that there's like nothing really fundamental about the idea of a home it's it seems pretty uh, plausible that it's a constructed concept, that there's somewhere that you belong, that you should be, and that you can return to. Uh, it's it's a constructed idea. But for some reason, the truth seems different. Uh, and <clears throat> it seems like part of the, or I, I think that part of the argument of the essay is that it isn't different. It is like other concepts in this way. Yeah. Even though, yeah, the way we think about truth is that, yeah, it's not just another concept. It's, it's like, it's a concept about concepts, or or it's a deeper concept. Yeah, it's like a meta concept. <laughs> yeah, it, like, how, yeah, there isn't something, uh, <laughs> like, the idea of houses isn't something fundamental about reality. It's not, yeah, unlike... Uh -huh. Unlike how we think of truth. Yeah, it's almost a trope that we think of things that are like logical or mathematical truths as being universal. That no matter what, you would be able to figure this out. Yeah. Just purely through the fact of existing. I think that uh, this is... It, it gets me to think about it from like what would a scientific perspective have to say about this sort of essay. <laughs> and I think that they would look at the part where he says we abstract by uh, taking things that are unequal and then treating them as equal. And I think that scientists would say, well, we are aware of this and we come up with theories of how to explain how things differ as well as how things are similar. So why cannot all of that be included in the truth? Why does it just have to be treating things as the same? Uh, I mean, I th I think he'd be fine with that. I think maybe where I mean, and I don't know. I I I don't know that scientists have. I think they can agree with this essay um, as much as anyone else. 
<laughs> but I, I think his point about science mainly is is that it's he calls it anthropomorphizing reality where science isn't you're not trying to discover these truths that are out there you're just trying you're just trying to come up with metaphors that explain uh the world in a way that's understandable to humans so really it's i mean it's all about humans and the metaphors they come up with to help themselves and i think that's basically right and i think that view has held up really well since, since he wrote this a long time ago uh, th- yeah th- this idea that yeah science is about um coming up with ideas that are that make reality more useful to people I, that seems right to me mhm i th- i think that scientists would say though that they're learning something about reality not they're learning something about people and what's useful to people yeah i th- i think um I mean, maybe some scientists are indifferent to that, but <laughs> you could probably ask some like physicists, and they'd be like, "Yeah, we are actually setting an external reality." I, I think, in general, maybe like a real like empirical work of like going somewhere where no one's been, like the bottom of the ocean. You're really learning, or you're getting more experiences that hadn't uh, been experienced before. But I think um, when you're coming up with uh, these ideas to explain evidence that you already have, um, then you, yeah, you are um, just making uh, making things that you already know or that are already in front of you um, understandable to people. It doesn't seem like you're doing something more than that. Hmm. So it's like there's the the data collection side, and there's the theory side where you actually explain your data. Yeah, and the explanation is just I mean, what Nietzsche talks about um, is just metaphors that you come up with, right? Um, that are understandable to other humans. It's not uh-huh. something fundamental about. Reality, I mean, reality doesn't work in these, I guess, human metaphors like math, I think he would probably say. That math is a human metaphor. Yeah. Huh. It, it's, it's a, math is just these abstract concepts that we use to understand reality. Uh-huh. So we're not, yeah, we're not discovering something new about reality itself but we are discovering new ways in which to think about reality i see so it's like a we're we're discovering things about how we think about reality not what reality actually is yeah i guess the reality is just out there and you can't really understand it on its just apart from are metaphors you would say yeah this i think this is an interesting 
question. First, I have a passage I want to say. Uh, so, <laughs> there is nothing in nature so despicable or insignificant that it cannot immediately be blown up like a bag by this, a slight breath of this power of knowledge. And just as every porter wants an admirer, the proudest human being, the philosopher, thinks that he sees on the eyes of the universe telescopically, fo telescopically focused from all sides on his actions and thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes the point well. <laughs> uh, it feels like we're discovering the secrets of the universe. But we're really yeah. making the universe more like how our minds work. Yeah, yeah. I guess that is kind of what an explanation is, right? It's like, how can you turn something that is completely foreign to anything about human minds and then make it now like coerced into the form that a human mind can take it in. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think this is basically right. Yeah. And because there's like tons of possible explanations that are just useless to people and we could discover them potentially. Um, maybe, you know, you could even have, uh, computer programs that have uh, some kind of understanding that just is not useful to us. But yeah, w when you're able to distill um, an explanation into an understandable one, then it's, you're doing science and it's useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And usually, yeah, I, I, I think the empirical part is like maybe a little, we'd have to think about separately, but I think a lot of science is almost purely this theoretical thing. Um, well, yeah, if you think about like the major theories in physics, maybe not, not evidence that this applies to most of science, but if if you think about, I don't know, special relativity or general relativity, um. A lot of the um, quantum mechanics uh, results, yeah, those are just people, you know, sitting somewhere and the evidence has been around for a long time and it's not really in dispute. And then, but they come up with these ideas that uh, create these massive breakthroughs. Hmm. And oft, a lot of times, like pretty simple. In, in in a sense, pretty simple ideas. Yeah, relatively simple compared to like the space of possible ways it could have been explained. Yeah, there's a um a, a passage I think that relates to this. All that we actually know about these laws of nature is what we ourselves bring to them: time and space, and therefore relationships of succession and number. But everything marvelous about the laws of nature, everything that quite astonishes us therein and seems to demand explanation, everything that might lead us to distrust idealism, all this is completely and solely contained within the mathematical strictness and inviolability, inviolability of our representations of time and space. 
we but produce these representations in and from ourselves with the same necessity with which the spider spins. Yeah, yeah, that's a good passage. And when he's talking about like time and space, I think he's ta- he's talking about Kant and you know, and the critique of pure reason. Oh yeah, talks yeah. about yeah time and space as being whatever, <laughs> whatever uh, the word he used, but as modes of <laughs> understanding, and but I th- I think that seems like something since post Einstein maybe where. It's kind. Of, that's kind of how time and space are even treated in physics. Like we think of people as experiencing time in a certain way, and space in a certain way. But then you can do physics uh, uh, by getting rid of those um, that perspective as well. Mm-hmm. I guess in that sense, it's, it's kind of an argument against Nietzsche, though. Because then you're saying time and space is um, is a part of reality, <laughs> independent of people, people's perceptions. Well, I think that uh, I would say it this way: is that it's definitely counter Kant because Kant is like uh, time and space is something we perceive as it is, whereas it seems that that's not true. And oh, then oh, oh I. I think well, this is just con interpretation, but I I disagree. I think Con is saying was saying that time and space are just human modes of perception. So they're they're uh, they're just part of the faculties of the mind, and they're not a part of reality. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Then oh, okay. I think I had the opposite interpretation of Con. I'm not sure where I heard that from. Okay, well, if he's saying that is a faculty of human understanding, then I think that that is pretty uh, corroboratory. I think Nietzsche just got physics. it from Kant. Okay, but uh, in in regards to Nietzsche, I think that it doesn't counter what Nietzsche is saying because uh, the only way that we can have these theories about physics uh, being different from our everyday observations is because of particular other observations that we made. So it's still about explaining our observations. They're just not the observations that we make when we're in a coffee shop or, you know, in normal everyday activities. It's like going to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. But what about the time and space comments in particular? Well, I think that he is basically saying what you you described Kant as saying, right? That time and space are... Uh, mode of a, or a kind of understanding that we posit. It's not something that we saw out in the world. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't really thought out the opposing view before I said it, but yeah, that I that seems like yeah, that could that's compatible with how physics approaches. Time and space. Because physics is still studying the time and space that we use to perceive things. They're just studying it under different circumstances than we usually see it. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it gets, it gets a little <laughs> trippy when 
we can talk about the how humans experience um time and space but then even when we talk about even when we do that even when we abstract away from those individual experiences we're still <laughs> thinking about reality in terms of time and space yeah even though we're saying like uh time isn't how we experience it's it's not um what it looks like when we experience it on a everyday basis same with space but then we still use those concepts so okay maybe this is yeah that's interesting a good example because why even call time and space time and space if they're not re- related to or if they're, if they're not the same things as you know oh it's been five minutes and this i'm in a small room right now like that kind of idea of t- time and space which uh-huh. which is where we, but we still even in physics when we're talking about nine nine dimensional whatever <laughs> universe or we're talking about yeah time as not something that you you like you're when you talk about time it's basically another dimension of space it's not something you go down in, in one direction which is how we experience time like why why do we even uh talk about those that other weird thing in terms of the ideas time and space well it's because time and space are understandable to us right yeah i think it's also that the idea of abstraction will get at what our perception is by explaining it in an abstraction right so like if you draw a parabola showing the arc of a ball being thrown right well we know that we don't actually see the parabola in real life we see each individual point at a time uh, as an experience of passing time being the x-axis on that sort of graph but when we look at the parabola and we're using this extra dimension of space on the paper as a dimension of time in what it's representing that level of abstraction is like the purpose of it is to explain our observation that is an observation with respect to time yeah so it's still talking about time and it's the same time that we perceive but it's abstracting it in a different way than uh i don't know a movie would abstract time okay what about space i guess okay well with space you could say the same thing but some of the observations because we don't experience all these crazy dimensions on an everyday basis right but (laughs) we observe them in our theories i I guess Mm -hmm. usually or we see experiments and then we theorize them um so i guess in that sense it is based on human experience Yeah, somehow in the theory, they have to connect it to what time is 
really, and not whatever formal concept they've come up with. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird to think about. Yeah, because physics seems so abstract and really just about the nature of reality. But yeah, I I didn't really done this too much before. But it seems like, I mean, the more you think about it, it almost just seems like kind of oh, of course, we talk about things in ways that we can understand <laughs> on some level, even if. The abstractions have gone so far that it takes a long time to understand them. Mm -hmm. Still, at some level, they are understandable to people. And if if they're not, then it's not science because it's not <laughs> useful. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole idea behind an explanation or a proof or anything is that it has to be understandable. <laughs> or, yeah, or even theory. Yeah, I think that... uh there have you've read uh slaughterhouse five right yeah there so in slaughterhouse five there are these aliens i forget the name of them but they claim that they see time as another dimension of space right yeah and they say that uh i see the timeline of the earth for example as a uh, a mountain range so it's like this slice kind of, but with an extra dimension. And it's weird to think about that because it's like, well, they use this analogy to something that we can understand, which is a mountain range, to explain something that we totally cannot even start to imagine in any concrete way. Yeah. So it's like, what what is it even that they're looking at? Like, how what are they experiencing? It's just impossible to even uh, imagine it. You can imagine feeling pain or, you know, seeing a uh, bright light or something, but you can't imagine seeing this actual scene, even though you can understand what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, I, you can, yeah, I mean, you can try to explain it and you, you can get a little bit of towards it, but there's a, a limit, clearly, to... Mm -hmm to um, making things understandable to people. So it seems like, yeah, physics is, I mean, has that too, clearly, and more and more uh, the limits are getting glaringly obvious. Or, or, I mean, as I, that's one way to think about it. Maybe it's right, or maybe it's wrong. Maybe tomorrow there'll be, you know, a massive advance in physics and all these crazy, weird quantum physics anomalies or experiments um, really are easily explainable by some theory. But it seems like we're coming up against um, getting explanations that are that kind of make sense easily to people and that tie together because up through like maybe Einstein you know classical mechanics all of that that's it's so easily uh, explained it's like yeah 
like Newtonian physics. You you throw the ball and it goes in the arc and bounces off the wall. At a, and the angle of infraction is the angle of reflection. Yeah. Yeah, the, and, and this Nietzsche theory also explains to me why theories that are untrue are were still influential and important in science. Like Newtonian mechanics, nobody, you know, oh, we've talked about this, but nobody would say it's just true because it's because we have uh, theories that come up with better predictions on the margin. But I th- I think that isn't really, it's almost irrelevant whether Newtonian mechanics is true or not. Um, <laughs> it's more relevant that it is useful and that come up, it comes up with useful predictions and stuff like that. So maybe even... Um, Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to come up with the true theory. Maybe, yeah, in the way, same way, Newtonian mechanics is not true. Maybe every uh, scientific theory isn't fundamentally true. Yeah, I guess that scientists would definitely be willing to admit that it, no scientific theory is 100% accurate. Like, every prediction that it makes will not be uh accurate i I guess is the simplest way to say it well no no one thinks of that of any theory in science but they think of it as some sort of progression like we're able to make more accurate predictions with this theory than this other one so therefore it's uh closer to the truth yeah well they say that now but scientists would have said of (laughs) mechanics that it that it's true right for a long time yeah that's I think Newton would definitely say that. <laughs> yeah, and people would have for yeah uh, hundreds of years maybe, but then yeah, at some point we came up with uh, measurements that are so precise that uh, <laughs> that <laughs> it, it exposed the flaws in Newtonian mechanics. Mm-hmm. It didn't actually take that long to come up with measurements that were showing problems but oh, re- it took a longer time to figure out how to explain them oh that, that's interesting what were the first ex- uh, experiments yeah they're they're these really interesting experiments where they would have these giant tables uh, like a big round table and then they'd have a big dome with a very small slit in it and then they would see the light coming from a certain planet and they would measure exactly when uh, the light was showing up, exactly where on the board. And they could see that the light was bending around the sun, for example. Like, very slightly. Wait, the light? What? What's the source of the light? Uh, like a planet or something. Or maybe not the sun, but like the moon or something. Because I guess the sun would be too bright. Well, yeah, and... Okay, and that would show that yeah, the sun is the source then, and then it bent yeah, huh. So those sorts of things Newtonian mechanics wouldn't be able to explain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. And then later on, yeah, like the um effects with time, like. Yeah, things were measured and 
Well, the, yeah, the speed of light was a weird thing mm-hmm. um, when, when you measured it relative to other things. That, that can't be explained. But yeah, even... I mean, yeah. any... Even just like throwing a ball, if you could measure that precisely enough, you could come up with disparity with Newton. But yeah, I, I, I assume for a while, yeah, people thought it was just true. And <laughs> if if your experiment didn't come up, <laughs> didn't totally confirm the theory, then you, you just redo the experiment. Yeah, it was just a bad experiment. That's how you know. <laughs> it's like the, uh, um, uh, or never mind, actually. But uh, <laughs> the funny story, uh, in high school, I had a physics teacher, uh, and we were learning, you know, about, like, relativity and stuff like that. And after class, we, for some reason, we were talking about NASA, and then the teacher told us like, oh, oh yeah, I did some things related to NASA like a long time ago. And it's like, whoa, did you get to like use all this physics to do this complicated computations? I can't imagine how like big the computers were that had to do this. And then he's like, no, we basically just use Newton's laws. <laughs> <laughs> and that was accurate enough. <laughs> yeah. For like launching satellites and stuff like that. <laughs> so it can get you pretty far. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's almost hard to think of examples of when they <laughs> wouldn't be enough. It's kind of, it's kind of Yeah. I yeah, I satellite communication with the earth it would be enough. Uh you, you would need more than Newton. Uh maybe. Yeah, uh, okay. It seems like at least some parts of it where you're they were able to get away with without even doing anything other than Newton's laws. I think like launching the satellites and all that you wouldn't you wouldn't need more. But like when you're sending uh, like signals, I think you'd mean you need more. Oh, I see what you're saying. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I I guess I this is a very like <laughs> brief anecdote, so not much to say. But yeah, I can imagine that. But yeah, I mean, that's a different thing than launching and operating them. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Uh, then it seems like physicists are still trying to come up with like the the theory, <laughs> the uh, theory of reality. Uh, like that's kind of been the project. That, and that was string theory for a while. But is there any reason to expect that that's possible? It seems like the Nietzsche theory would, would be that uh, there isn't really any reason to expect that reality will perfectly conform to some set of metaphors that we come up with. Mm-hmm. We've been able to pin, go like extremely far, and you can teach... 20 year olds quantum mechanics but it's a question of like how much further can we go is there going to be a wall is that kind of what you're thinking or things just become ununderstandable yeah i guess yeah um 
like, is it possible that we come up with a set of metaphors, which is just a theory that can explain every physical observation? And that seems, yeah, like he would say no. It's like even, but even now, I don't, I don't know if we've gone far, but we've gone far on a relative basis, right? We had these <laughs> very crude explanations, and then we have better and better metaphors. But on an absolute basis, it's you could say we haven't gone anywhere. On um, just if the idea of having a fundamental fundamentally true theory doesn't make sense then we aren't any closer to a fundamental theory than we've ever been hmm. yeah I guess it kind of I, I want to say something about what it even means to have a fundamental theory but the way I want to segue to that is to appeal to his original uh, conception of what concepts are, which is taking things that are unequal and treating them as equal, right? And that's sort of like the the original sin <laughs> of truth is uh, embedded in truth is this falsehood. And <clears throat> I think that you can imagine a sort of theoretical physicist coming to this question and being like, okay, well, what if we just don't do that then? Let's let's treat everything as different. Is there anything we can say then? And there seems to almost be a question of uh, maybe if you just treat everything as different, there isn't really any such thing as truth. Truth is just uh, an individual fact about each individual thing, and there's no truth about the relationship between things. Oh, I, I don't, and I think there aren't even individual truths, because truth is just, it's like the sky is blue, it's Without that relation, there is no truth. Like the sky yeah. isn't true. The sky is just the sky. But if you say the sky is the sky, then you're making a relation and that can be true. But just the sky isn't true or false. Right. So I guess it would be something along the lines of uh, just supposing Nietzsche's like proposed or uh, he doesn't exactly propose it, but imagine we're treating everything as atomically different. We're not doing any concepts. Then is there anything we can say? Well, you can say, given a thing, that it is itself, I guess. You can say analytical truths, but is there anything else you can say? Do things have mm. properties? No, I mean, you couldn't say anything, yeah. And I, I think he, yeah, he, he's okay with this, or he says this, basically. But, but so yeah. Um, so there, a truth is sort of this emergent phenomenon. When you start to allow concepts, then is the idea. Well, I I think he distinguishes, you know, this the drive toward the formation of metaphors is the funda fundamental human drive, and then I think he has an ex a separate explanation for truth, which is like the social explanation. And this essay is just about what happens when our metaphors get more developed and we retain this idea of truth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm saying then is sort of summarizing that, which is uh, there's an explanation of why we have concepts in general, which I think is 
going to be the same explanation as what he gives for truth, as you said, like that they're useful. But then truth is like this meta concept that emerges from having concepts at all. If you don't have any concepts, then you don't get truth. But once you start having concepts, then you can develop truth on top of that. That's what my argument is. Yeah, that seems right. Um, but yeah, I think if we didn't have concepts, we couldn't talk about anything. But yeah, I mean, yeah. So there is somewhere between having concepts and having truth, because there are animals, say, that have concepts but don't have truth, exactly. Or maybe they have, like, a proto-truth that's still in development. Uh, do, wait, do animals have concepts? Sure, yeah, they have, con like, a dog has a concept of, a, you know, its owner. Huh, I guess so, yeah. Even though it's not an articulate concept. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't put that condition on it. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. But yeah, dogs don't have an idea of truth. Yeah, I guess that you could say something like maybe they do have something like an idea of truth, but it's like very simple or... It's a part of what we would consider to be truth in general. You can imagine that humans develop truth by merging a bunch of separate concepts uh, that are like smaller, more specific versions of truth into this one giant thing called truth. And maybe dogs have like a small sliver of one of those things. Oh, okay. Um. Uh... I have some other things. Oh yeah, that I can bring up. Um, Actually, sorry, I think we're gonna have to end it there. Oh okay. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> hey, what? <laughs> you said that you had some more things, and I was like, no, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I like this comment he made about. He said, so long as it is able to deceive without injuring, that master of deception, the in intellect, is free. So he, mm. he, we talked about before, like, kayfabe, like, um, oh, yes. people love being deceived uh, when it comes to, um, yeah, WWE, they, it's like this fake spectacle that they they love um when we talked about like people like magic tricks they know mm. they're being deceived but they enjoy it and yeah Nietzsche explained this explains this by saying uh the intellect you know the intellect yeah I guess um just that when there aren't any consequences to deception we enjoy it and the reason we usually don't enjoy it is because of the negative consequences associated with deception. But uh -huh. yeah, w without that association, the intellect, yeah, like likes likes deception. Yeah, and the key term there is association because there could be, say, an anticipation of bad consequences, and that would be enough. 
it doesn't have to be that every time you have a lie, something bad happens. Yeah. There's a, a funny, bringing up magic tricks again, uh, I remember this other thing that was interesting about it, which is that, uh, again, from Penn and Teller, talking about magic tricks, uh, they say that it, uh, people like to look at magic tricks where it seems like someone is in danger, like someone is eating metal needles, or they're like swallowing fire, or they're eating glass, or they're like getting stabbed with swords, right? These things that are seemingly dangerous. Um, but the person is not actually in any danger. That's the whole premise of the trick, is that it, it, it seems like they're in danger, but they're not actually in danger. But we feel really importantly that it should be a trick, right? Because we would feel terrible if they were actually in danger. <laughs> it would yeah. be totally unethical. So there's uh, this idea that we want to be tricked uh, into thinking that it's dangerous because that's how it's appealing, but we don't actually want to believe it. Yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, because we're not, yeah, we're not actually being tricked, but it's like we're exercising our faculties that allow us to engage in deception and figuring out deception, but yeah. we're just playing with the faculty of deception instead of actually, uh, yeah, being committed to it, I guess. And I want to think of this as being the same sort of process that happens in like abstract arguments about things that are seemingly unimportant to everyday life, but people treat very seriously. It's like, uh, what am I trying to say? It's that you are the intellect being exercised is the same as this uh, abil exercising your ability to be um, tricked. It's super entertaining, and it, it's the same process because you're talking about something that is clearly not relevant to your everyday life, but somehow you've came up with this entire framework for thinking of it as relevant. Huh. Or, or like puzzles uh yeah I, I think a puzzle is like a manifestation of this but it's not like the basis of it, it doesn't have to be a puzzle uh, what do you mean by that wait what's the difference between a puzzle and your other example well I think that puzzle can be interesting in its own right but I'm thinking of like uh, I think you've brought up examples like this before where people like get into these heated arguments uh, about abstract esoteric topics and it's like why would they do this why do they enjoy this right yeah and I think that you could read into it that they enjoy this fantasy of treating it as important it's an exercise of their yeah. intellect yeah I, I guess I, I just see puzzles as that as that <laughs> <laughs> It's like the intellect is made for or was developed in this context of like, you know, perceiving things. So in order to survive, basically, you know, finding food and shelter and figuring out who's a prey and predator. Mm -hmm. But then 
you use it to like fill in little X's and O's on a sheet of paper to do puzzles. That that seems okay, uh, okay. radically yeah divorced from <laughs> from uh, uh, the normal usage. Okay, yeah, I I do see what you're saying. Yeah, I guess I I'm thinking about it again. I think I would agree with that sort of reading. Puzzles are like the it's like a pure exercise. It, it's not supposed to be uh, something that's gonna like, get you food the next day or anything. <laughs> yeah, it's you're playing with the intellect, but I, I and I see like I agree with your example about the abstract discussions. I think those can be just that. Just you're just playing with your mind. I think there's some F quotes that I really like. I think, I'm, but it's just too many, so I'll put a few of them on the description. But this essay, the writing is so good. Yeah, man, it's just very quotable. <laughs> yes, we could just quote the entire thing. <laughs> it's like the density of ideas to words is crazy. Like there's so there's so many different. Just like every paragraph has a really interesting idea that we couldn't possibly <laughs> adequately discuss. Yeah, this time. It, yeah. it definitely is just like super broad. And I think that the first half, it's focusing on this thesis about where truth comes from and concepts. And then it just sort of goes on to the meaning of life, the universe and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th there's even a section on culture that we didn't even discuss at all that I, that I found really interesting he talks about like the man of intellect and the um the intuitive man and he says like hmm. in some cultures where the intuitive person is dominant uh or in some civilizations where the intuitive person is dominant cultures culture develops and he says like the Greeks were probably an example of a very intuitive culture. And then he says, like, intellectual uh, countries and people, uh, I, I guess they, intellectual people suffer less because they're able to um, put everything into these conceptual categories and, and then deal with threats in that way but then they're also unable to get pleasure from their abstractions because the abstractions are just that there isn't any more anything more to them and so the benefit of being an intellect uh intellectually leaning person is you suffer less because you're able to do once you um one another way to think about it is once you encounter a problem if you are using your intellect you can learn to anticipate when uh you're gonna have the problem next so mm. so you you order a real reality in a way where you can avoid problems and that's the benefit but he says you also can't enjoy uh things as much because you can't enjoy your abstractions because they're just abstractions and you can't really access experience in the same way because to do that you have to forego your abstractions and then yeah he says the intuitive man can 
uh, very masculine. Uh, I'm just using man words, but he, um, <laughs> because that's what he says. He, he uh, suffers a lot more and he <laughs> keeps suffering the same things. Like right. once one problem happens to him, it happens to him again and again because he isn't able to put it into this abstract categories uh, to deal with again. But but he's also able to experience like the the good parts more than uh, the other the intellectual person. Um, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, there's so much more he talks about. Mm-hmm. Another point is we only know that we are not dreaming because we've come up with because we're in this very intellectual mode of thinking and yeah and and the moments when we think that we might be dreaming are the moments when our veil of concepts is being torn basically by things oh. like art Oh, I thought man. that was yeah. I thought that's that was amazing. Su- yeah, that's super good. So it's like you know that you're not dreaming because in a dream things don't make sense, but things can make sense here. And you're only able to. That's not even an observation that you would have if you didn't have right. you know all this all these different categories. Like, yeah, if you're yeah. purely intuitive, then dreams would seem like way more real. Because it's almost the same as your normal experience. You're you're not trying to make sense of things. Yeah, uh, I mean, it just yeah. So there there would be a yeah much. I mean, there wouldn't be a. I mean, yeah, there'd be much less of a distinction between dreaming and not dreaming, and it it wouldn't even it just wouldn't occur to you to think of them as separate. Like the idea that they're separate is an abstract. Uh, abstraction. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, but, but I I thought. Also, yeah. Also, also another really cool thing was I I think I've had this experience, you know, plenty of times, which I I wouldn't have been able to identify before, but just the idea that when you're watching or experiencing a great work of art, you I don't know. There's there can be this. I think it happens the most with probably music, um, maybe paintings, but uh, yeah, there's just like this eerie feeling that you can get, and yeah, Nietzsche explains that as saying that it is it's messing with your uh, with your um, intellectual apparatus of reality and when it does mess with that then uh it kind of it kind of seems like you could be dreaming and sometimes you wonder if you are dreaming because you're losing the intellectual framework that you used which supported the idea that that you're not dreaming i guess Hmm. so you're using like nietzsche's idea here is an explanation of that feeling yeah well yeah i mean he he made that explanation well yeah uh he made that observation yeah i think that would be the explanation 
but it's an experience that you've had, so you're describing that. Yeah. Okay. Huh, yeah. So it's like a, it's like a pure experience that you're just in the moment as opposed to analyzing it in higher level concepts and constantly comparing it to everything else. Yeah. And yeah, the observation like it seems yeah, if as if I'm dreaming, that's definitely a, a abstract, you know, uh statement. So I guess that leaks in or maybe you come up you think about that later, but yeah, I mean of course humans can't be totally instinctual. Yeah, it's not really a choice whether or not to be this, uh, as he calls, instinctual man or intuitive man. It's it's almost like a it's a mode of being, and you would have to really have a significant transition to come from one way of thinking to another. Yeah, I I think it's a significant transition, but I think it is like there are ways to influence that process ways to cultivate you know one side or another i think that's what greek was greece was to ancient greece was to nietzsche like a, a culture where this intuitive approach was encouraged and yeah that's done through education and all that and then now i think he would say now like uh the scientific um approach to reality is heavily emphasized and it, it actually yeah cultivates people and educates people uh towards being that way it's anti-intuitive <laughs> yeah yeah it totally makes sense that if your dreams were way more like reality then believing in all these gods flying around controlling everything would be much more <laughs> assailable Yeah, that was, yeah, it's kind of impossible to really understand it for me. Like, how you could (laughs) uh, live like that, like, actually believe in these fantastical things. But it seems like, yeah, Nietzsche understood it in a way. seems to be have explained it a little bit he understood their mindset you mean yeah and i think a little bit intuitively too in order to even come up with those observations because usually you know i I mean i've read plenty of or i mean i knew about you know their myths and all that but there's (laughs) i couldn't say anything interesting about that It, it was just like it just seemed silly and yeah but and I, I guess i probably didn't it's hard to even take it seriously that they believe these things but it seemed like it seems like yeah there are definitely people who did who do have that approach to reality uh-huh i think yeah socrates, it seems like there really were people back then that believed in it yeah i think socrates is <laughs> that doesn't really right yeah. And um, <laughs> that's partly why he got hanged. 
<laughs> yeah, so he was the anti-intuitivist of his age. Yeah. That's, yeah, Nietzsche didn't really talk about that part where Athens is also, and Greece is also, it's kind of the beginning of, like, this intellectual culture as well, like the opposite of this intuitive thing. So, yeah, I wonder what he'd say about that. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. As I, I don't remember the history very well, but my impression is that Athens population-wise was pretty tiny. Yeah. So maybe they were a budding spread of that, but they weren't influential on their own. I, I think he... Yeah, I don't... It seems like they had a lot of both culture and and science. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's all, all I have f for now. I mean, every time I think about it, <laughs> there's so many more things. One thing that, just on the, the note of religion, maybe just to end on this, because of course we always have to go back to the Bible, is like, you think of uh, the arc of Christian mythology or uh, the, the story, and it starts out with God doing a lot of things and being super active, right? And then it sort of like becomes less and less about God, and God's like much more in the background and less directly involved, uh, especially in... Christianity, I guess. Uh, so, one way you might see this is uh, like the arc of development of these concepts and truth and all of this is uh, at first you think of the world as this wild uh, place that you have no explanations for anything, so you attribute everything to God. And then as you learn more and more, you come up with these other explanations and you understand higher level concepts of how the world is organized and or understand slash create these organizations and God has less and less of a role to play. So he becomes less uh, active in the mythology. And of course today, no one would think that these sort of things that God did in the old Testament would happen today. They're like, no, God doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. That's cool. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, because even people who believe in God now, it's like they believe in very little compared to what they would have believed previously. <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> well, okay, yeah, God exists, but then also the universe started with the Big Bang and, uh, you know, evolution developed uh, these molecules into humans and <laughs> so it's like wait what does god do then but whereas right. previously yeah you would have god you would yeah god would have created the universe and earth and animals and humans and all that and there's the the tower of babel that uh god like destroys a large portion of <laughs> Because they <laughs> built it too high, and it like had too many languages, it's like, well, did God just kind of forget about that rule? 
Yeah, or or like yeah, flooding the world, entire world. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we're about to get that right. Climate change. <laughs> it's coming around. Yeah. Except I but, guess they tell us it's, that it's uh, our doing this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, okay, that's uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I like that way of putting it. It's like a concrete way to think about how we've engulfed more of our reality into these abstractions. Like the climate is totally uh I don't know, tractable to us now in these scientific concepts. There's nothing <laughs> uh, <laughs> mystical or magical or, yeah, awe-inspiring to us about the climate changing. Yeah. It's just like, oh, okay, people drove too many cars, uh, <laughs> went on too many airplanes. Uh, we took too much of the stuff in, in the earth and put too much of it in, in the air, so now we're screwed. Yeah, and that's totally, like, something that a lot of people get on board with. It makes sense that that is an understandable explanation. Yeah. So, okay. I wonder... And even when people, just as a last note on it, even when people debate about it, they debate about it in the terms of climate and uh, all this stuff. It's not like they think there's no such thing as climate. Like, (laughs) Yeah, like, in America, we have a huge opposition to the climate change idea. But the opposition is like, is just terrible science. <laughs> it's just worse science. It's like, yeah, it's like, no, no, the the climate actually changes uh, naturally through these scientific processes and humans have played no role in it. But it's still the arguments that you come up without are scientific arguments. Right, yeah. They're all arguing on the same playing field. It's not like the it's a different entirely different approach. And then just one side has not played the game very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the other side isn't like, oh no, it's actually not understandable. It's, it's uh, <laughs> Right. Which would know. totally be a more understandable position, I think, if he said like, you know, it's the climate is unpredictable. There's no abstraction that you can apply to the climate. <laughs> oh okay it's like talking about the the center the sock center of uh the center of socks it's like the the point on earth where uh all of my lost socks are the average uh distance between them you could try oh. to come up with a theory of this but it's just nonsense okay well, well but i mean in the climate example it that's i mean that's just not true. I, like the right, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I agree, but I think that that would be a much more like uh, understandable position. Whereas this one's just like pure fake news. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there are you know, um, like uh, tribes that do like offerings mm. and they, they still do their rituals about the climate. Oh yes. They're like, why don't you guys just sacrifice more pigs? That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, uh, so... Yeah, I'm really... I'm interested in this... The Nietzsche argument at the end. Because it's like... 
I appreciate the Greeks. I I I, I enjoy their <laughs> the artworks that they created, and that's what I that's really what I value of them the most. But it's like I also I mean also I mean I, the climate is um, predictable, and I don't know. It's like how do you access this intuitive understanding of or approach to reality without being like dumb basically it's like he kind of gave two options it's like the intellect man and the intuitive man it's like one or the other but it's and it's like the more intellectual you are the less intuitive you are but that's kind of that's kind of not a nice bargain. Yeah, it does seem like that is an important point that he's making. That there is this trade-off that you can't like have the best of both worlds. Yeah, he's very explicit about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the. Yeah. Yeah. With the examples about yeah, the intuitive man suffers more, and it's only because he suffers more. Like that's connected with the upside of being able to experience and feel more, and the upside of yeah, the intu- of the intellectual man of running into fewer problems is connected with. Uh, having a more abstract uh, approach unless yeah yeah it's a trade-off yeah once you have these concepts you can't really forget them they're embedded into how you see the world so you have to take the good with the bad yeah you can't like turn them off in order to enjoy your play and then come back to (laughs) all your intellectual realm I guess, uh, like acid, a psychedelic drugs, <laughs> that's kind of, that's a way to, yeah, I think that that's a way to be uh, intuitive while hmm. still in your everyday life being like, you could be totally the most scientific person in the world. <laughs> But you're the most scientific person in the world. It's very (laughs) specific. You're Ben Shapiro. (laughs) Oh, yes, the most logical person. (laughs) On steroids. Yes. But yeah, but but if you take a psychedelic, it still works equally well. (laughs) Huh, yeah, that is an interesting point. That is basically, yeah, what you would do to avoid the trade off. You you have some mind altering substance that it's nothing you could do really on your own, maybe with like extreme practice perhaps, but nothing you could feasibly achieve uh, to the extent that you could with a high dose of LC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, I, it would just be, it would be very temporary, but temporarily it seems like you could switch. Although, yeah, you, if you want that to be more meaningful, ish. It would be a part of your everyday life, but 
temporarily you could do that. It is interesting how embeddedly temporary it is because you could, even if you did take LSD every day for a month, you would get uh, only high for like the first day because your body develops a uh, immunity to it over time. You just do double the dose every day. Uh, I think even if you do higher doses, you retain the immunity. Some, uh, maybe Wait, if you I, had like a I lot, think, I'm not I sure. I think you just... Oh. I don't well, think I, it's... I, yeah, I assume I, you, just, you just die at a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's died from LC ever. Oh, okay, I, but I wonder... Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. But I wonder... I think you'd have some pretty serious side effects. I, I imagine, like, yeah, but I don't know. I'm sure that there's been experiments on rats where they give them like a gram of LSD or something and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think they don't die, but I doubt they also I doubt they had a pleasant <laughs> experience. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. I I had this idea for a, a short story where uh someone does that experiment, they're like, Okay, what happens if I just take a ridiculous amount of LSD? Because it's like I've never heard of any story like this, but Surely it's possible there's nothing standing in your way, fundamentally. And then in the story, how it goes is that they take the LSD and then they wake up later and they don't remember anything about it. And uh, everything seems completely normal. And they can't, and like, it's as if nothing had happened. They didn't like wake up in some weird place. They just woke up in their room as normal. And then the effect of it is that forever onward they question everything because they're not sure if they ever came out of that trance <laughs> even though everything seems perfectly normal but they they just cannot trust their understanding anymore oh i, I did not see that twist coming that's really good <laughs> yeah you should you should write it yeah yeah that's good but yeah i like if you did take a huge dose yeah there is like a limit to it like you can't be you can't go be like infinitely <laughs> psychedelic yeah if you just like coated your body in it like a pound on every <laughs> part of your body like you wouldn't be able to absorb it yeah i i i think i guess you would go into a coma at one point or just yeah a state where you're not conscious and you don't remember anything yeah, I guess that we're making a few assumptions about the mechanism of LSD, which is like, it really does break down your ability to make concepts, which seems plausible, but I'm not sure if like that's what it really is doing exactly. It's probably doing a lot of things, and that's like some side effect of it. Wait, really? That Wait, that's... What else does it do? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just... I'm skeptical that there is such a mechanism in your brain that's like the the mechanism for turning up and down your abstraction of concepts. Oh, I, I think okay. I think it basically is uh is that. I think it basically just <laughs> breaks down yeah, the different parts of your brain and uh makes them function kind of together instead of in these separate units. And I've read about some studies and 
it seems like that's kind of the conclusion that they come to that it makes these different parts of the brain light up at the same time uh, instead of separately something like that hmm. and then the experience of it also like you know synesthesia happens often where you know music and visual images come come together um indistinguishably right right yeah i always assumed that that was basically the mechanism yeah uh yeah that that is really interesting that it's so specific I would have imagined that there's like a lot of other effects that happen in addition to the ability to make concepts being drained. Yeah, I, there's also, yeah, I think like ev- every psychedelic has similar effects in that category, but then there's, there might be some slightly different effects also. I don't, I wouldn't really know. But. Yeah, there there is a similarity to them, I think. So do you think they, t- yeah, break down categories? Uh huh. So do you think that maybe uh, what it was like to live in ancient Greece was like sort of to be tripping slightly all the time? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Huh. Yeah, but that- it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's better because you're sober. So I think, yeah, you maybe retain more of the other faculties at the same time as having that breakdown. Yeah, you would be used to it. So it wouldn't seem abnormal. You would, like, not be fumbling around and stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's weird to think about. (laughs) It kind of does make sense, though, because it's like you're, you're living in such a more... You're, uh, I don't know, there's less systems. Yeah, everything is more impulsive. Yeah, and it kind of, yeah, it kind of explains so many of the weird, <laughs> crazy stories we get from <laughs> that time. And really from, like, other ancient times as well, places as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is a great post-hoc explanation for all of that. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, is there anything you want to say in conclusion? Uh, There's a passage that I wanted to read. I, I think I'm good. Okay. Here it is then. Um, there are ages in which the rational man and the intuitive man stand side by side. The one in fear of intuition, the other with scorn for abstraction. The latter is just as irrational as the former is inartistic. They both desire to rule over life. The former, by knowing how to meet his principal needs by means of foresight, prudence, and regularity. The latter, by disregarding these needs as and as an overjoyed hero, counting as real only that life which has been disguised as illusion and beauty. I think that's a good ending. Well... Okay, well, next week we're going to be doing. <laughs> I think I think the recording you can just cut off.